Welcome to the Spinning Wheels podcast, powered by Greenlight Sports and Entertainment, with your hosts, Guy Smith and Paul Woodford. Welcome to Spinning Wheels, a podcast with one mission, to dig deep enough to find the people behind the racing cars and what stories we've unearthed so far, from TV stars and V8 supercars adventures to glittering GT racing careers that started with karting around Sainsbury's car park. And then we have my co-host who, as yet, he's holding out on us with those big stories of British glory at Le Mans and Formula One tests with Williams that have so far gone unheard. But we will get there, won't we, Guy Smith? Well, we'll we will do at some point. But as I said before, we've got, we've got far more uh, exciting guests to talk about than me. And I think today's guest is going to be, uh, you know, it's definitely um, got some great stories and, you know, what a fantastic career. So looking forward to getting stuck into this one. Uh, Absolutely. Often we, we overuse the phrases motorsport hero and racing legend, don't we? But for today's guest on Spinning Wheels, we can be forgiven. A schoolboy riding motocross who could have imagined Formula One, IndyCar, GT racing and British touring cars could all lie on the path ahead. Welcome to Spinning Wheels, Mark Blundell. Uh, great to be here. I, I, I'm not sure that you could describe me as a hero. I don't think I'm anybody's hero. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's put that one to the back of the, uh, the dictionary. Yeah, hero. No, not been described as a hero before. That, that's for people like Captain Tom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah that, that's, been, that's been amazing. I mean, uh, you know, I know you've been tweeting a lot about it, Mark. And, uh, you know, I mean, what, what a superstar. I mean, absolute, absolute hero. But, um, but in terms of racing heroes, you know, you, you know you, you're absolute, you know, Absolute legend. Um, in 2002, you are, both of you are, to people like me, motor racing heroes. And if you grow up with motor racing as your be all and end all, then you can credibly call those people heroes. So we'll, we'll leave that one parked in a box. <laughs> if you say so, Paul, we'll go with that. We'll, we'll leave it with you. Don't worry. <laughs> yes, guys, you guys know each other pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll, we'll come to that at some point. Obviously, we we sort of were in the same team together in Bentley in two thousand three, and you know, we had some we had some great times. Um, I mean, we, we can come back to that and talk a little bit about that because uh, you know they they were great fun times. But um, I think we we'll just maybe just have a little chat about your sort of career to date, Mark. I mean, you know, obviously there's so much to go at, so I won't go over everything. But I guess your sort of start into motorsport was pretty. I guess, on, well, maybe not untypical because you didn't really kind of do the, go, the, go down the karting route. You were kind of more, more bikes. Um, I know a few people have come from, from motocross, but um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how, how you got into, into that. Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't come from a, a motorsport family. Um, <clears throat> I come from a, a secondhand car dealer. As, a, as, as you know, my dad, that's, that's where uh, everything sort of got generated from for the passion for sitting behind the wheel of a car. Um, so I was driving cars at eight years old, you know, on private land and, uh, and crashing, I think, at eight and a half years old. So uh, I got the understanding of how to do that properly. Um, you know, but yeah, listen, I grew up understanding, you know, what a set of rear lights looked like in the dark because I'd seen so many of them on the Ford Court of the garage. So I could tell you what a Ford Cortina was or a Ford Escort from, you know, half a mile away. So that was the passionate sort of kid who was a petrol head at heart. Uh, we lived rurally. So the kind of, you know, the weekend was scramble bikes, dirt bikes. Everybody would sort of get on a motorbike and go around the, the fields. And that's what started me off in sort of a competitive career. Um, I got onto a motocross bike, loved it. I was uh, never any good at school anyway, totally uh, 
um, academic and um, was much happier putting things back together again or stripping them down. And that's pretty much what I did. I did that on a Monday, took the bike apart and put it back together again on a Friday and made out that I went to school in between. But um, that's another story. So, you know, uh, got to top 36 ACU rider on a 125cc bike. Um, and that's kind of like where it got to, to a stage then I'm like, mm, I don't think I'm quite good enough to go to the next level, although people said that there was potential there. Uh, all the time, there was all, all those four wheels were already, you know, you know like niggling at me, like what, what's four wheel racing all about? And, and I didn't know about it other than a friend of my dad's, who was another car dealer who had a passion for motorsport, who started to take me to local races. Like we'd go to Snetterson and watch motor racing. Didn't have any clue what it was actually, you know, about. But um, that's really fundamentally where it all started. If you go on our Instagram page, we've reshared a picture of Mark um, pretty high in the air on his motocross bike. I think that was when you were actually at the uh, highest level, wasn't it, that picture? Yeah, I mean, that's, that was a uh, senior level and a 125. Um, quite funny, actually, because I look back at it now, and there's a few guys that I raced against as a schoolboy that then came into, into the sport. So a, a guy called Alan Morrison, who did British touring cars. Yeah, oh, yeah. so uh, Irish lad. Alan was a, was a supersonic schoolboy motocross rider who then went on to be a professional motocross rider and then he trans transitioned uh, to four wheels so it is quite ironic yeah and there's a few guys uh a kid called jason bonham uh, i don't even remember like he's uh, the son of bonham who was in led zeppelin oh really yeah so he's then gone on to have a very successful music career himself so um yeah it, it, quite funny so lots of memories lots of memories because a lot, a lot of um a lot of guys that i know that have come through motocross and then gone into car racing they've been exceptionally good because I think with the bikes, I've got no experience, but you know, you learn about reading conditions, road conditions, you know, finding the grip. Um, and also it's really physical as well from a, from a racing point of view, but also from a training point of view. So it obviously stands you in pretty good stead in terms of, you know, your balance and, 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 and what have you. So, um, so, so, so tell me about when you sort of went to car racing then, how was that sort of first moving to four wheels? Was it a big shock or did you kind of find it quite an easy, easy job? It was, it was really funny, Guy, to be honest, because as I said to you, we had no experience. So, um, you know, once we decided that maybe we're going to drive racing cars in circles, it's like, okay, well, what do we do? Do we go and do Formula 3? And, and uh, we're like, you know, we've heard of that, so that must be where you start. Of course, no understanding whatsoever that there was many, many formulas underneath that. Um, we went to the racing car show, which back then when I was a youngster was, uh, I think it was Ali Pally, Alexandra Pallis back then. So we met up with a guy who was a sensational fella, a little guy called Mike Blanchet. He was like the commercial director at Lola, Lola Cars. Luckily for us, he was uh, incredibly educational because he said, look guys, you know, you don't understand the sport clearly. You need to start a Formula Ford 1600. That's where you enter this sport. So we're like, okay, great. Uh, lucky for you, we manufacture those cars. Typical salesman, he was straight on it. Um, and lucky for you, we're just down the road. We're in Huntingdon, Cambridgeshire, so uh, on our doorstep. And that's where the relationship actually started with Lola Cars. And I had a, had a fantastic relationship with those guys. And um, we went into Formula 4 1600, 1984. But where we were slightly different, and I think we probably created a little bit of a trend, is that we couldn't get our heads round that there was a champion of brands, a Dunlop Star of Tomorrow, an ESO round, all on one day. There are only 10 lap races. And people were turning up and just doing one race. And we're like, okay, you know, we used to do four races of motocross in one day. 
all it is is a bit of extra fuel, an entry fee, and maybe a little bit of tire wear. So let's do all of them. And that's really what we did, you know. And if you looked at the scales economy-wise, it was cost-efficient. Yeah. The downside was when you had an accident, the cost went up. But, you know, it was all about condensing and packing in as much as what we could do. And that's what we, we set out to do. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously, you, you did, um, obviously, win Formula Ford. And, um, and then, was it your second year you, you, you smashed it and won the championship in, in 1600? Um, um, well, at 84, actually, I did... 84, I won more races than any other British or Commonwealth driver. And we, we won what was back then called the Golden Helmet Award. You can take that as you wish, Guy. Yeah, but it's, yeah. Um, but it was, it, was, it was given by Autosport, by the Autosport magazine. And at the end of 84, I was presented with the, the Grovewood Award by uh, James Hunt. That's like the Young Driver Award now, isn't it? Similar. That, that is today's Autosport Award. Yeah, exactly that. Um, and I think we got... 5,000 quid or something that was uh, contributed, which was fantastic. Yeah. And James Hunt as a, as a kid racing cars. Uh, you, you know, Paul, listen, you, you, as a, exactly that as a kid, you know, and, and I was looking up to guys like that. And I think actually James at that time was doing the commentary of Murray Walker. So, you know, he's famous not only for doing his, his racing, but more so for his TV work that I related to. Um, but, you know, I got to know James Hunt in latter life, uh, an incredible character and someone that um, I had a huge amount of time for. And, you know, for me, and Guy, I probably relate to this as well, those guys don't exist anymore. Um, things have changed. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's been quite nice to sort of live through some of those guys where that, that character has actually been at the forefront of our sport. Yeah. I'd love to have met or, you know, appreciated James Hunt now as I'm grown up and understand these things, yeah. Yeah, absolute, absolute legend. Absolute legend, and then, so so yeah. So Mark, so obviously you know you, you've done Formula Ford, and then and then you moved up to Formula Ford two thousand again. Uh, you you win the championship in two thousand as well. Yeah, um, I came off the back of eighty five with Formula Ford sixteen hundred and won the title there. Just missed out on the European title with my good friend Bertram Gascio. Yeah. Um, and then I went off and did the the Grandstand Winter Series in Formula Ford two thousand up against some big guys, I mean, back then, like Dave Coyne, Bertram Fabi, some, uh, some up-and-coming guys that were sort of really earmarked uh, as the future. And, and, and we did well. We, we won that little mini-series. Um, it's probably one of my best trophies. I don't, to be honest, I'm not sure even where it is. But um, it's the same as the Sportsman of the Year trophy, you know, like the camera. Mm -hmm. So um, I really did enjoy uh, uh, receiving that, but that set me up for 2000, the year after, Formula 4 2000. We had a, a deal with Reynard and, um, and I was with a team called Anglo-European Racing. So even back then, uh, this will sound quite bizarre to you, but even back then I was getting a wage. So I was actually being paid, I was getting £150 a week. And I got a road car because one of the guys who owned the team was a Nissan franchise. Um, I, I thought I'd made it. I mean, I, you, I thought I was a professional. Did you, did you have to have your name on the car by any chance or not? Yeah, I was, there was a little bit of, uh, yeah, it was a little bit of signage. I think you had to have that guy to, um, to get around tax issues. So, um, yeah, it's a Nissan Micra. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a Skyline, it was a Nissan Micra. So, you know, I hadn't quite cracked it. A work driver in a Nissan Micra, brilliant. I had a Mitsubishi Charisma. When I drove for in Formula 3 with uh, Mitsubishi, I had a Mitsubishi Charisma with my name down the side of it, which was kind of cool because I got a free car, but everyone wanted to race it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, sorry, Mark. So, carry on. So, so yeah, you did, so you're doing uh, 2000. 
Yeah, we did fall of full 2000 and I have to say, um, fantastic year. But also, you know, the, the beginning of your, your slicks and wings career um, because you come from Formula 4 1600 back then which a uh, single seat a race car but on treaded tyres and then you go to 2000 and in our era then it was you know aerodynamic with wings slick tyres and that's when you started to really understand a little bit more about a car and I didn't have that experience so a lot of the guys who like yourself who've done karting and come off of slick tyres you know they, they had quite a bit of uh, education about how to uh, operate them and get the best out of them for me again it was another learning curve because all i was used to was a treaded tire on a formula 4 1600 yeah. so yeah good good times the, the, the kind of next move was, was an interesting one i just reading up on that was was actually i didn't realize but you kind of skipped formula 3 i know you did a few races with, with toms but you kind of went straight to three formula 3000 uh, formula 3000 uh, which is a quite a big step up and and i guess you know, Formula 3 was kind of the, the natural progression. So how come, how come you went that route? That's a, That's a good question. Um, so basically what happened, I'd, I'd been successful in Formula 4 2000, uh, British and I think European champion, um, like a second maybe in a British championship. Uh, and we'd, had, we'd kind of got the, the sights from, you know, set from a couple of other areas. And, and we were like looking at what was the next step. F3 was a logical one. Um, Marlborough picked me up and asked me to go and do a test. When I look back at it now and even sort of, you know, understanding a little bit how the sport works, I was never going to get the Marlborough seat because it was already engineered to go somewhere else. It also didn't help that uh, I rolled the car over. <laughs> so um, that didn't help either. Yeah, it did go down that well. So I was pretty quick, but uh, yeah, I, I put it on his roll hoop. Um, and then... We had, uh, I don't know if you remember back then, but there was a manufacturer called Anson um, that manufactured F3 cars and they were sponsored by Yokohama. And it was, and it was quite, a, quite a good sort of financial deal. And they approached us and said, look, we want you to be our driver. So I basically went there with my dad because we didn't have any manager at the time and we were, you know, bearing in mind, you know, we had no understanding of the motorsport, how it works, but we went to the, the, the factory there and waited for this guy, the boss. And uh, my dad's pretty old school, you know, everything was like, if you tell me to be at 10, I'll be there at 10 and I want to meet you at 10. So anyway, we sat there for like 15 minutes and by this time I could see the old temperature rising in his face. And by uh, 10.30, I'm sort of saying, Dad, like, you know, this big opportunity, just calm down, calm down. So eventually the guy rocks out of his office and sort of says, oh, yeah, I'm ready for you now. And my dad stands up and says, well, you know, you're not wasting our time. If you can't meet us at the time that you stipulated and you don't even have the graciousness to come forward and say, I'm going to be a little bit late, then we're off. And that was that. So, yeah. And that was my dad, you know, and that's kind of the values that I've grown up with. So, <laughs> right or wrong, you know, that's that's what it was. If you listen so, to this, don't be late for an MB Partners meeting. <laughs> if you listen to my stuff, they'll probably tell you that as well, Paul, yeah. Um, but, you know, what happened then was we kind of looked at it and said, look, we can't get a decent seat in F3 because we don't have an, enough budget and we don't have an opportunity because all the big team seats have gone. So we were wise enough to understand that you needed a performance package but we thought, okay, let's, let's look at what the next step is. So we said, let's go to F3000. And everybody thought we were completely crackers. Um, and we probably were because we did this humongous step and rolled in with that. We said, well, we'll run our own team. You know, we don't need anybody else. 
So I was kind of a team manager at the age of like, I don't know what, I think like 20 or 21, you know, uh, or even less uh, with this team running an F3000, which was back to Lola, back to getting a secondhand car as a year old with a mechanical injection DFV engine. And we, we set about doing an F3000 season, which uh, I think that we called the car the shed because um, it kind of resembled an old shed. So, you know, it was a bit patched up in areas. But listen, we had some great success and a huge amount of enjoyment. And it was a fast learning curve. I mean, we fast-tracked very quickly. Yeah, did you have that, ambition at this stage? Did you have a view of where this could go and where did you want to go a particular place? No, we didn't, uh, to be honest. I mean, it was still this journey of, you know, we started in 1984. We'd been successful. 85 was great. 86 was great. And then there was this massive void of, right, what do we do now? And we set about going on our own to, you know, with our own little journey and mission, not really understanding what we were doing. But then we got to this sort of international sort of uh, platform and we were there mixing up with some big teams, some big sponsors, some big names. And then we started to think, hmm, maybe there's a little bit of understanding that some potential behind the wheel. Um, but, you know, in the background of that, we were coming into a period of recession economically um, because mostly at this stage there was a you know quite a bit of self-funding from my family which I was incredibly grateful for and then also there was you know in, in the background of all these stories is the the boy becoming the man and the father understanding that he is no longer a boy you know his eldest son is becoming a young man and, and actually me and my dad had a massive set to um, you know, a, a, a big set to over this period that I was in this international platform of, uh, of motor racing. So it, it was an incredible time. And looking back now, <clears throat> my dad passed away a few years ago, but, you know, um, it really did sort of educate me on, on the big wide world and, uh, and gave me a good understanding of uh, how to treat people and, and how, how to be treated and want to be treated yourself. So, yeah, good, good values again. Yeah, those values, we, we, we were talking about it with, um, with Mike Simpson on our first podcast. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of those values, you know, people always say about how do you have a sort of a long career in, in whatever you do. And a lot of it is those, it's that work ethic that, you know, because there's lots, so many good drivers out there. They're all, I mean, pretty much everyone can do a job to a degree, but it's having that sort of tenacity and that work ethic and that kind of like that, that self-motivation that makes a difference. And, and clearly you've obviously... You know, you've got that because you've had a long career and, and a long successful career. But there's been so many, you know, good drivers, really, really good drivers that you see sort of fizzle out. And it's just that they give up or, or they don't have that kind of that, that inner sort of strength. So, um, so yeah. So, so next question is kind of, so how did the sort of sports car, how do you sort of end up with sports cars from 3000? And where did that, because I guess the next move was, was towards, you know, with Nissan, wasn't it? Um, well, I guess what basically happened, guys, is, you know, from the, the performances in F3000, and again, those relationships that were born out of 1984 and Formula Ford 1600 with Lola down the road, you know, and that's part and parcel, I think, of some of the, some of the guys today, they don't, they don't invest enough in relationships, that, you know, with the understanding of, look, this, this, there could be something that blossoms from it. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that you need to, you know, use somebody for you know your own usage i'm just saying at the end of the day that you need to make sure that you've got a two-way stream of communication and also you know a reciprocal relationship where things can be that at the end of it oh you know what we need a driver we like him we know that he works hard he can get the job done we'll call upon him for his services yeah. or 
I know that there's an opportunity that's starting to, you know, get manufactured over there and it's a project. I know the guys really well. I'm going to go knock on the door and see whether there's anything I can do. And that's kind of what happened with Nissan. I was with Lola Motorsport, F3000. The Lola got the contract with Nissan to develop a chassis. They said, look, you need this guy. We think he's a great guy. I got the deal there. And at the same time, it all morphed into then me getting an opportunity at Williams to be a Formula One test driver. And that 1989 season, I was doing F3000, World Sports Car Championship, and Formula One testing. It was an incredibly busy year. And did you have a Nissan Sunny by this point as a company car? I'd, I'd upgraded. I'd upgraded. With, uh, with the Nissan deal, they supplied us with a Nissan Skyline. Ooh, nice. um, and there was only two of these Skylines in the country, in the UK, because they were imported from Japan. And so myself and Julian Bailey, my teammate, had one each. And um, I have to say, even back then, they were an incredibly quick road car. Uh, and also the most tow-happy car that you'll ever drive. I mean, it's like driving a pickup truck with, you know, 400 horsepower. Um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. We're going to need some pictures of these company cars, Mark, after this. Oh, I don't think any exist. I think they got put on the scrap heap after we used them. <laughs> and then, of course, um, the following year, um, Le Mans, what can I say? The, uh, the famous pole lap by, was it six seconds? Pulled by six seconds, and of course we've all we've all watched it and rewatched it on YouTube because it, I mean it's an absolute monster. I mean, I mean, I, I I've been back and watched it a few times. I know Paul's watched it as well, and um, I mean that thing was. I think I think you said it was literally blowing up. I know as it was going around the lap, it was literally blowing itself to bits. But what was it like? Well, listen, I think you know you know as a driver guy that um, you you've got some memorable laps that you sort of relate to, and and that one was memorable for me for many ways because. The, the Nissan program was growing. Um, we'd had a dreadful Le Mans in 89 because we were the first team to take carbon fiber brakes to Le Mans. Right. And we were the first team to find out that they didn't last long because on lap one, I think it was Julian Bailey run into the back of a TWR Jag because his brakes failed. So we went back to Le Mans in 90 and it was a real bit between the teeth for the guys at Nissan. They took us basically a qualifying car. You know, they, they took another chassis with engine and uh, it was all about trying to achieve something quite spectacular. So there's a flip of the coin between me and Julian. Who's going to qualify the car? Because we knew that we had this qualifying, you know, hand grenade. And who's going to start the race? I won the toss and I said, no, you know what? I'll go for the qualifying cars. I thought, let's go for the glory. <laughs> so the, the week just got into its normal stride at Le Mans, as you well know. But the problem was that every time we went out with this qualifying car and tried to run, it would never run properly. It just kept overboosting. The Japanese were like, come in, we've got to sort this out. Because, you know, Japanese as well, they're very, you know, they're very cautious people. They don't want to see failures and they don't want failure in the public. So it's like, no, one hint of any problem, bring the car back. So this car kept going out, wouldn't run, going out, wouldn't run. And we basically got to the end of the week and we got to that last qualifying period and it was the twilight zone, as you well know. It's okay, let's give it one last go. We've tinkled with it. We think we might have it running. I went out, bearing in mind that we were on the hardest tyre that we had. We had to put that tyre on because we had no data of knowing how long a set of tyres would last on the soft or a medium because we hadn't run in anger. We had no balance. We had no understanding of what the car was going to do because, again, it hadn't run at any pace. Went out, spooled up. Well, you know what? This feels okay. It's clean. Engine's okay. Yeah. Yeah, all right. 
we'll go around halfway through. And then the next thing is I get a call on the radio, bring the car in, abort the lap, it's over boosting. At this stage, as you can imagine, you know, I'm like, you know what, screw this, I've had enough. So I unplugged the radio. I don't want to hear any more. Unplugged it, carried on, and I commenced the lap. And uh, I never forget coming out the last chicane to like start that lap. I got my toe in, and I was still spinning the rear wheels at fourth gear before we got to the Dunlop chicane. It had 1,100 horsepower. This thing. I mean, it was just it was immense. And we went through. You've probably seen on the video. Went through that chicane with opposite lot both times, because as soon as I started that lap, that whole journey was just pure reaction and gut instinct because there was nothing that we had. I didn't know what speed I was going to arrive at the corner, what it would do under braking, how quick I was going to get there. I had no understanding whatsoever what was going on. Every single corner, every single turn in brake point was pure one lap wonder stuff. Um, we did 238 miles an hour on the Mulsanne with the chicanes in. And, you know, to this day, I still say, We've won a little bit of traffic that we caught, but if we had some reference laps and some understanding and a proper set of tyres, I think I would have knocked another four seconds off. That's how much was left on the table. But we've crossed the line. Um, of course, I didn't have the radio in. I didn't know anything until I got back to the pits. And it was, oh, it was so funny. You had, you had a cross between anger and euphoria. And you had several Japanese technicians who were red in the face with like a wry smile and then all the european all the brits were like up in arms because we've got pole position and we did it by just over six seconds biggest margin in history i think i think it still stands today but i got my backside kicked i mean i properly got hammered by nissan i mean they were not happy they were happy in one respect first japanese manufacturer ever on pole but i disregarded team owners and uh, they soon let me know about it which part of that balance did you feel the most? Were they were they more angry or were they more pleased? Or was it different people in both camps? No, different people, Bobby, because, you know, you had all, all the guys who have been working the backsides off to get this car to where we got. And they were just, you know, fantastic. You know, pole position. It was such an incredible sort of uh, achievement for all of the guys. And don't get me wrong, everybody at Nissan was very, very happy because it was, it was a major, you know, proud moment for them. But it was also that Japanese cultural thing where I'd gone against... Uh, an authoritative order and uh, taking it upon myself to take the uh, you know the Nissan Motor Company name <laughs> into an area of unknown <laughs> so <laughs> that's one that's one of those political uh, situations that you make the call at the time and listen I made it and, it and lucky for me it came out on the good side but um, you know that was only pole position because the, the race was a different story altogether. But do, do you think that that helped kind of um, kind of your profile I mean obviously it's it's now it's like sort of stuff of legends it's on youtube and people go back and and and, and people still talk about it to this day um do you think that that helped kind of raise your profile because obviously the, the next move was it was into formula one full time with um with Tyrrell. was it Tyrrell? uh brabham oh, with brabham sorry yeah with brabham so so you know that was sort of the first step into formula one sort of full time right yeah, I, yeah, I guess it did help me. I think it helped me in terms of you know the, the motorsport world that they'd seen something that was uh, was quite special at the time. Um, you know, bear in mind as well, I, I'm probably quite fortunate that I'm one of the bigger set guys and 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 reads me strong and a sort of upper body for a, for a race driver. Um, it took some holding on because you you know back then we had no power steering. 
you know, no power steering, no uh, no semi-automatic gearbox. So I mean, it was a, it was a beast. So you know, physically, it, it took a bit of hanging on to. But I think what happened there, it also gave me, you know, a little bit of confidence. But I also knew that I'd kind of put a bit of risk on the table with making that decision. And if I'm brutally honest now, I probably didn't take those decisions when I got into F1 when I should have, because I still think that, you know, I wasn't selfish enough when I got to Formula One. Mm. And, and probably the Nissan decision I took then was the only selfish time that I've actually said, no, go for it. You know, look after yourself, MB. Whereas all the other time I've gone, no, 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 I'll do the right thing. Mm. Looking back, probably should have made some decisions in my career, which would have been a little bit more, you know, look after number one, which could have changed the dynamics of my career. But that is what it is, guy. That's who I am. And I, and, and I can't, you know, complain about it. I just live with it. That's what it is. Yeah, it's what's really interesting for me is having watched that lap, I, unlike you guys, I haven't driven at Le Mans. I, I've been there. I've not driven, obviously. Um, I can relate to what you said about suddenly switching that lap on and suddenly making that decision. Because when I watched that video there's a moment when you clearly coming into that last chicane suddenly just drop the hammer as it were and you can you can i can relate to that having seen the video which is quite fascinating for me because i can't often do that i listen to racing drivers talk about what they're doing and i can you know understand it but i can't relate but having watched that video immediately i thought i've seen that moment yeah 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 and, then, and then, <laughs> so once you moved into Formula one then so how 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 did it, you know things change when you became like an f1 driver did 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 it you know how did it kind of feel once you, you know, you'd made that switch? Um, well, listen, I wasn't going to F1. I was going to TWR Jaguar. So I had an agreement with Tom off the back of the World Sports Car Championship that, you know, I was going to go and do a season at TWR Jag. And uh, that was where I was heading. And I was basically going to take over from my buddy, Martin Brundle. Um, but in the interim... I'd also been doing all of this test work at Williams. So, you know, I was like the first generation of test driver at Williams, 1989. I've probably done more active ride suspension and semi-automatic gearbox work between Williams and McLaren than any other driver on the planet. I mean, we've done tens of thousands of kilometers. So those performances then, again, were setting some eyeballs on me during the, uh, you know, the Grand Prix testing and the F1 pit lane was taking note. So we've got to a point with uh, a new deal with Tom Walkinshaw and TWR. I'd agreed it verbally. The contract came across and there was a big bonus missing, you know, a little, a little fiscal figure that wasn't in the paperwork. So, and I'm like, go back on, look, you've missed out. We agreed. You've missed it out of the paperwork. Probably was intentional, but you know, yeah. try and, uh, try and pull one over your eyes. And then in this little period of time, I got the call from Brabham and they're like, look, we want to offer you a seat. And it was, a, it was a big decision because, you know, I was, a, I was a young guy. I didn't have anybody around me other than my dad, you know, and friends to sort of give me some guidance, but they didn't really have any big picture understanding of motorsport and didn't understand the network of people. And probably then it would have been great to have somebody who was a, in the management world to give me some guidance. Um, I was holding a three-year test contract with Williams. You know, I was still ready for another third year with them. And was very close actually to racing a Williams at Donington in a, uh, a non-championship Grand Prix that was going to be put on. And I was earmarked to be the third driver in an active car. And at the last moment, that race got called off. Again, if that would have happened, maybe the dynamics of my career would have changed again. But I took the role at Brabham. I thought I've made it. 
I was a young dad. I was already a father, which many people didn't really understand. You know, I'm trying to make an international career. I'd already had a family. So my responsibilities. Sorry? How old were you at this point? Uh, 21. 21 when I was a, a father. And then I was coming up to, I think I was 23, 24 when I went into F1. So, you know, from... From 84 starting motor racing to then sitting in an F1 car in 89 and then a full-blown Grand Prix driver by 91. Back then, it was a fast transition, you know. Um, that's, pretty, that's pretty young, actually. I was just, just thinking, you know, that kind of time, a lot of the Formula 1 drivers were kind of late 20s, early 30s. So you were quite young, really, to be into Formula 1. Yeah, yeah, I was quite young. And as I say, and also the pressures of, uh, you know, I had my, my first son, me and my wife, and... Uh, you know what it's like in motor racing. You'll go year on year and you'll sit with, you know, Christmas and New Year with no contract and no revenue, no, no wages. And it's like, it's a bit of a risk, but you've got to follow your heart and you've got to go with your gut and you've got to believe in yourself. And, that, and that's basically what I did. <clears throat> so I signed with Brabham. And uh, in hindsight, it was a mistake. You know, um, I'd, again, I was being a good guy. I picked the phone up to my buddy, Damon Hill, and said, look, I'm off. I'm leaving Williams, pick the phone up to Frank, get yourself in there, do yourself a favour and be first in the queue. Yeah. And we know what happened to Damon, where he went on to be and what he achieved. So he still owes me a drink for that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, the Brabham call was great in many ways, but it was also a bad call in my career because the penny dropped when I went to Imola and did the qualifying weekend, uh, or did qualifying, and then did the Grand Prix. And then actually, the week before, I'd been asked by Williams to go back and test for them. So kind of unheard of that a Grand Prix driver is racing for one team and then goes and tests for another. Um, but Williams wanted me to go back, evaluate their car, the FW14. And I then got permission from Brabham. They were over the moon because it gave me an insight into a Grand Prix winning car. And I tested at Imola the, uh, the following week. I think it was on the Tuesday after the Grand Prix. And I went round that circuit 2.2 seconds quicker on race tyres than what I'd done on Pirelli qualifying tyres in the Brabham. Wow. And then you understand. You go, oh, you know, yeah. I'm only as good as the car. Yeah. And I'm sitting in something that I know when I roll down pit lane, you know, it's not really going to be a possibility to be standing on the podium with this car. Yeah. Um, Listen, I still scored the first, first world championship point in the Brabham and the first world championship point for Yamaha that year. So, you know, we, we, we did something with it, but um, I, I very much knew that it was not the place to stay. Yeah, yeah. So then the following year, you kind of moved, um, I mean, obviously, you had that, that, that you know, fantastic victory at Le Mans with, with Peugeot and you were obviously testing with McLaren, which I guess McLaren also had the Peugeot engine. So um, were, those, were those two deals kind of intertwined or how did, how did all that come about? Well, I mean, as I say, coming off the back of Brabham, I knew that it wasn't the place to be. So I'd made my decision to go and do something different. Uh, Ron had already asked me to say, look, you need to come and work with us in a big team and, and, and be our reserve guy and test. And that's basically what I did. I mean, and I, I was test driver for Senna and for Berger, and I, I learned a huge amount. But the Peugeot relationship wasn't actually... Uh, built yet between them and McLaren. It was the following season. Okay. But like all of these deals back then, the manufacturer and, and the, the, the team were already ahead of the program and the deal had been agreed. They, you know, they knew they were Peugeot powered the following season. And with this, 
John Todd was running Peugeot. They were going to do the Le Mans uh, program again and wanted a third driver and basically asked me with the McLaren connection to be the third guy. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, listen, I had a 100% success record that year. Uh, yeah, quite impressive. But I only did one race. <laughs> <laughs> it's a decent one to win, to be fair. If you're going to win one race, it's probably not a bad one. So, I mean, so you were with, uh, you were with Yannick, weren't you? Dalmas and, and Derek. Um, you know, you know, obviously great, great drivers. Um, and, and, and obviously got, everybody got on well and, and, you know, it was all good. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, working with Jean Todd was great. It was great insight into how we ran a team. We'd come from, uh, from running all the big Peugeot success in World Rally. Um, to, to drive alongside Derek was very special for me because I admired Derek and looked up to him as a youngster. And he was, you know, a superstar Grand Prix driver. Great guy. And I also knew Paul, his brother, well. Um, and, you know, and that was, uh, that was quite special as well. And Yannick Dalmas, a fabulous guy, um, you know, a great teammate. And, uh, and listen, you know, Lamont, you, you, you've done it. You're, you're on, uh, you're on the, uh, the record books as well, guy, with that. It, it's something very special and, and unique. But that race for us was quite special because of the conditions. It was an incredibly difficult 24 hours of, of weather conditions. Um, and to, to run the pace we did and to have minimal mistakes for the team, the drivers, and to actually go back and, you know, I don't know whether you've ever done it, but we got to the end of the race and everyone sort of got to, uh, after all the celebrations, which were actually quite minimal, to be fair, for a French team. I was thinking it was going to be something special, but it wasn't. Um, we then went back and actually got back in the car again and started it back up, you know, and, and, it, and it was on the button and it just sounded like it could do another 24 hours. It was, it was quite an emotional, emotional period. Have you, what were the celebrations then? Give us an insight into that. Well, it, uh, French race, French manufacturer. You'd think it would be something incredibly special. Um, you got to the podium. There was no champagne because I think it was, it was banned. Um, and, uh, and actually after, we didn't have anything. It, it, we got back in our cars and we drove whatever the period of time is to get back. I can't remember now. Is it like four hours or something? Guy back to Paris. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and we got back to the airport and I was sitting in Stansted, you know, at, at midnight or something back at the, uh, uh, back at the airport in the UK. Um, so the celebrations didn't take place until another two weeks after when we had a big, uh, a big shindling in Paris. Yeah. Quite, quite surreal. <laughs> Sat there in Stansted yeah. on Twitter these days, wouldn't you? Retweeting people for the, for no, the no. trophy in Stansted, yeah, yeah, no, it was um, it was weird. I mean, you saw all the big French, you know, the L'Equipe and everything, the big sports papers the day after with all the headlines, and I'm thinking, we haven't celebrated, you know. And I was ready for a drink by then. I mean, you know, 24 hours, you, you're a little bit, you know, hydrated, are you? <laughs> Especially with no champagne, that's no good. That's no good. So, so, and then, so then you're back into Formula One the following year. So that was with um, uh, Ligier. So was that with Martin? Was that when you and Martin were teammates? Yeah, so again, I'd come off the back of doing the McLaren testing. Um, I'd been approached by a couple of teams. Ligier approached me. Uh, I looked at the technical package. I was quite interested in it because they'd taken the, the Renault and the rear end of the Williams uh, organisation with, with the whole sort of drivetrain and gearbox. Everything was there. So it's like, you know, all the rear suspension basically was the same as the Williams, you know, and I'm like, okay, I, I think we've got something here. And I was the first um, British driver ever signed by the Ligier team. 
so quite quite special. Um, Two Brits in a French team—that's pretty pretty unheard of, isn't it? Well, it, it, it was it was good and bad, guy, because uh, Martin then turned up. So as you say, the second roast beef that they signed, which was all a little bit uh, special, but he was smart, you know, much smarter than me. He spoke French. He was fluent. And uh, by the end of the season, he'd pretty much understood all the politics and the dynamics of what was going on. And, you know, I, I was out my ear and, uh, and, and he stayed on. Um, and I could never work out because I had more podiums than him in that, in that car. So, you know, it, it didn't go according to plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and then, so then the following year, um, you're back at, at Tyrrell, right? Is that at Tyrrell in, in uh, 1994? Yeah, um, Tyrrell from me a seat. Um, you know, back then, Ken Tyrrell was still around and an, an incredible guy. Yeah. Uh, his wife, Nora, very, very much a family run organization. Um, still operating now, their old woodsheds back in, in Ockham, Surrey. So, you know, no high tech McLaren or anything like that. Very different. Yeah. But we're working then with Harvey Possaweight as a designer. And a, and a young up-and-coming uh, performance engineer called Mike Gascoigne who went on to bigger things. And, you know, it was great. Ukiya Katiyama was my teammate. Um, the only downside of that was that Ukiya weighed about 58 kilos, and I was like 76 kilos or something, and there was no, uh, no, balance. no balance. Yeah, there was no balance back then, so there was no sort of like equalization. So, you know, it was, you'd look at the, uh, the data and you'd see like this, separation you know because there's another 20 kilos being pulled around with me sitting in it yeah. um but but, did you have? was it yamaha that year yes yeah so back with yamaha so again that relationship you know that that relationship from 1991 that the opportunity was there and the, the guys at yamaha were sort of like no no we, we, we want to go back and do something with mark again and it, and it was great and again we scored the first world championship point at brabham at spa and we went on to score the first podium for Yamaha Motor Company uh, in, in Spain. So um, I think that earned me a, I think that year earned me a jet ski. I think that was my prize. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, they said to me, what do you want? You, you know, pick something out of the production line. So I think, oh, a jet ski sounds quite good. I have one of those. I don't think I ever used it. I've got no lakes near me. <laughs> I think I once won a jet ski when I was doing Indy Lights. I think it was, I think it was sponsored by Ski-Doo. And I think if you got pole position, you want a jet ski. It's like one of those things. Like, got a jet ski, great, but I don't think I ever used it. So, uh, uh, and then and then, and then you moved to McLaren. Um, so that you you were, went to McLaren. You were teammates with uh, with Mika Hakkinen, and, and of course you also went back to Le Mans, um, where you had a fourth place finish um, in the Gulf McLaren, um, if, if that's right. And uh, how how was that? Yeah, I went to McLaren again. Um, Tyrrell had basically run out of money. Uh, you know, we had several problems through the season, like Monza, we went off a brake failure because the brakes were uh, basically worn out. They'd be re-skimmed a couple of times and, you know, where the big teams were replacing brakes, um, budget was running out. And when you start to have fundamental areas of concern like that, it's time to leave. And I couldn't have stayed there. I didn't have the budget. You know, I didn't, I'd always been a driver that had gone on merit and taken any sponsorship with me and, and they needed sponsorship for the year after. Yeah. So, again... Uh, Ron Dennis came knocking again and said look understand that you're not where you want to be but opportunity is with us again to come back and uh, and work with us so I went back there again as a test and reserve driver that was my role yeah little did I know that already there was some friction in the camp that you know may have seen some changes and 
Luke Man- Mr. Mansell was there, was it? Mansell and Hackenham. Yeah, that's right. Nigel was there. It was a big, big deal for them. But, you know, we all know the story that there was a, a chassis and he didn't fit in the chassis. And um, in the end of the day, it didn't work out for him to stay at McLaren. So, you know, he's, he's lost as my gain. And, uh, if I can just uh, come in with a question from Twitter, because we're trying to weave these in as the conversation comes around to it. A guy called Andrew Smith, who uh, Guy and I both know from a, a local motor show near us, Guy. Um, he, he asked about this specifically, and he said that um, Nigel gave up after those two races because the, the cockpit was too narrow for him. But was the car really as bad as Nigel said? Because you and Mika had a, a fair amount of success with it. Um, well, you'd probably have to ask Nigel that, but anyway, <laughs> listen, I can only go on what we did with it, and we had some we had some poor performances, don't get me wrong, but we also had some sensible results, considering um, Mercedes-Benz first year into Grand Prix again for many, many years, and, you know, some reliability issues and so forth, but... Uh, <laughs> Listen, I'm I'm a, I'm a big I'm a big guy for a Grand Prix driver. I'm, I'm, and if you if you look at the statistical weights, actually, there's probably not a lot of difference between me and Nigel over the years. Yeah, we're big set for for a Grand Prix frame, um, and I've got wide shoulders for a Grand Prix driver as well, like Nigel. Uh, and all I say is that I I managed to fit in the car, so you know I, it is what it is. Um, whatever went on behind the scenes there, we probably won't ever know about, yeah. uh, and I honestly don't know. But as I say, it wasn't my concern. You know, I, I, I again just wanted to get in that car and do what I could do, and and again, it, it was good for me because I didn't know that they were going to take DC the following season until very late on in the season, even though the deal had been done quite early. But they said to me, "Look, you know, we're, we're thankful for what you've helped us with." And actually, Mercedes-Benz turned around and said, I, we want to give you something to help you go to your next stage. And the next step actually for me was going to Salva. I, w- I was on my way there. I had heads of agreement drawn up, and that's where I was going. And at the last moment, they just took in a new investor called Dieter Massachusetts, who's a Red Bull guy. Mm-hmm. And Dieter, uh, part of his investment meant that he had control over this, the open seat in driver choice. And his criteria was that he wanted a Grand Prix winning driver in the car. And the only guy that was left at that point was Johnny Herbert. So Johnny had a Grand Prix win under his belt, didn't have a seat at the time. He took the Salva seat. I was a little bit disillusioned with F1 by then. I knew that Mercedes-Benz at this stage had given me a IndyCar engine program to take with me as a thank you. And basically that's what I did. Uh, I got my rucksack on, went to America, knocked on the door of uh, a guy called Bruce McCaw at PacWest Racing. Again, from a relationship with Reynard because they gave me some insight into this guy wanting a driver and, um, and took Mercedes-Benz engines with me. Did you take the family with you and was that a big decision to, to long-term, let's move out there or was it just to test it and see? No, it's, uh, the first year actually, the family stayed behind for a good nine months because I didn't want to uproot them. Um, you know, at this stage, I had you know, two, two young boys. I didn't want to uproot them and take them to a different country if I didn't know there was going to be some stability. So I was flying backwards and forwards, which wasn't ideal by any means. And uh, quite funny, I, I, the first time I went to Indianapolis, which is where the team was based, and, and Guy, you know, there's, uh, you know, that's pretty much the hub of, of single-seater racing in America. I turned up and I go, okay, I'll do the right thing. I'll locate near the team and uh, make sure that everything is, you know, good. I'll be able to visit them daily. And I went and got this apartment. 
so okay little furnished apartment everything's cool and then I turned up there again like four weeks later and the weather was horrendous I mean it was like being back at home on the worst day possible so um, my wife had come with me at the same point you know to come and see what this new world was going to generate for us and I turned around to her and said um, you know what don't hang around in Indianapolis get yourself on a plane to Miami and go rent an apartment in Miami because we can't go and stay here. This is not for us. It's like being at home again. <laughs> I, I, I did two years in Indy um, downtown. So I was right next door to the Conseco Fieldhouse. And I kind of enjoy. I, I kind of enjoyed it because it was it was all new and different. Of course, I wasn't with with family when I was there, so I kind of enjoyed it. But you're absolutely right. If you're going to go to America, you want to be by the beach or you want to be where the weather's warm. So, 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 did you end up moving to Miami then? Is that where you ended up, or? Yeah, we we, we took a, an apartment on Miami, um, and actually we were lucky. We took one on Miami Beach. So, um, and and good for us as well because Miami, you know, East Coast, getting back to the UK wasn't too bad. Yeah. Um, but we stayed there for uh, for just under a year, and then actually my team owner had a, a house in Arizona, in um, a place called Paradise Valley, which is a, a suburb of Phoenix. And Phoenix always resonated with me because it's where I did my first Grand Prix. So, you know, uh, the US Grand Prix was in Phoenix, Arizona, around the streets of Phoenix. And um, I, I went there and I, and I fell in love with the place then. It was one of these mixes of, uh, of you know, of, of desert and mountain and urban and, and sort of like, you know, great place. So when, when the, my team owner, Bruce, said to me, look, I've got a house, and if you're thinking of now moving the family over properly, why don't you go live there and just, you know, see how you get on? And that's where we fell in love with, with Arizona. And, uh, and actually, we kept a house there for 17 years and have many, many friends there. My two boys went to school there. And, um, yeah, some fantastic memories. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome. I, I remember, because I think around about that time is when I came over to do Indie Lights, and I always remember you know, remember you, you know, in the, the sort of the Pat West car with a Motorola sponsorship on and, and, um, you know, I mean, I mean, Pat West was sort of, you know, absolutely one of the top teams, Bruce McCoy, you know, super multi, multi millionaire or billionaire. Um, so yeah, so I, I remember it really, really well. So how, 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 was, how did you find the sort of transition to IndyCar from Formula One and, and, and obviously going to oval racing? Cause obviously that's something that as, as Europeans we've, we'd never done before. How, how did you find that transition? Um, it was a tough guy. I mean, uh, you know, it was tough in a couple of ways for me because it, I'd come through my Formula One career and, and my career in, in general as an old school conventional right foot breaker. You know, so I, so unlike karting again, I never, I never did left foot braking. Um, and in F1, you know, Mika Hakkinen was a left foot breaker. All the, it was a two pedal setup. I wasn't, I still had three pedals. I think me and, and Rubens, Barrichello, were probably the only ones of that generation who were still right foot breakers. I'm a still, I still right foot break. Do you really? Are you still right foot break? I'm, 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 I'm old school. I mean, probably like you, I, I can left foot, but my natural, my, I came up with karting, so you do the two pedal thing. But because when I came up doing Formula Ford and stuff, you always had to heel and toe. So for me, it was always natural to break with my right foot because you had to heel and toe. And then when you went to paddle shift, it just, it just seems natural to break with my right foot. So... Although I could probably left foot break, um, you know, you can adapt. But I know, I know, like you say with the ovals, you, you know, those one mile ovals, which are really technical. Cause, I mean, the big ones are sort of flat out and it's different because you've got to, you know, you have all the you know, position of the car and stuff. But those one mile ovals, the place like Nazareth and those kind of yeah. you know, got three, three corners to them and they're really tricky, aren't they? 
Exactly that. And uh, I think that's the, that was the biggest difference for me was trying to understand like left foot breaking you and, and you had to left foot break, as you say, you couldn't get away without doing it. You know, left foot breaking and down changing on a short oval when you're coming into a corner at 200 miles an hour is, um, is quite eerie at times. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it, and it's a different discipline, and I think that's something that people don't quite understand. You know, it's it. I people say, "Oh, it's easy," and and I say to them, "Until you've actually done it yourself, you know, please don't say that to someone that's actually competed in it, because you're you're misinformed and you're and you're not educated. Because I can tell you now, it is not easy. It's far from easy, and I'm not sure whether you felt the same, but that. That, you know, that 20 years plus at that stage of your career of going out onto a track, going quick, lowering your car to get more performance, going quick, lowering your car to get more performance. You go to an oval and it's reversed because you've got the car running low. You get quick, it grounds out, it bottoms out. You lose steering, you get sideways. You've got to come in, you've got to lift it. Mm. Then you go quicker again because more efficient, you've got to lift it. And it's like, oh, this doesn't compute. You know, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going crazy. Um, all these little nuances and, and, and changes that you have to apply for oval racing. And, and for me, when the car was right, and which was very rarely, but when it was right, it's some of the most pleasurable driving that you ever did. Yeah. But when it was wrong, it's some of the scariest stuff I've ever done behind the wheel of a racing car. You listen to the engine all the time. You can hear it. Going, you can hear. You can hear the car as it's binding up, and you can feel when the car becomes free. And you, with your fingers, you you try all the time trying to put the minimum amount of steering in. And 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 like like Mark says, it's such a you know you have to have real respect. I mean, like with the NASCAR guys, even you watch them and the sort of big old guys driving around. But until you've actually done it, you don't realise just how difficult and how talented those guys that those guys are. And because I, I find it quite interesting, because you know. Subsequently, you got people obviously like blessing me, Dan Weldon, um, you know, Dario, you know, a lot of Brits that have actually gone over and done really well on, on ovals, which is, which is quite strange because obviously they're all learning a new skill, but they seem to have adapted to it fairly well and done quite well on ovals, which is, which is, which is a strange one. You were celebs out there, weren't you? I mean, from the outside, from a, a British motorsport fan, reading autosport and everything else, you guys going out there were kind of big deals. British driver doing well in Indy, did you get sort of really appreciated out there by the American audience? Oh, I, I think, you know, I think Guy will, will, will say the same. I mean, the, the American race fans are a great bunch of people and, um, and enthusiastic. And, and listen, America is all about entertainment. So if you entertain them, you know, you, they're going to take to you. And yeah, I think if you're, if you're a Brit, I think there's a little you know, a little bit of, uh, of a link there. They, they love the accent and uh, we're, we're a bit quirky to those guys. And, uh, <laughs> and I think also, you know, most Brits in terms of race drivers are, are tough racers. You know, I, don't, I think they, uh, that's how they got brought up, you know, and, and I think they appreciate that. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, this uh, oval racing is, is pretty unique. And, yeah, you're right. There's been a lot of success by guys um, who have gone across there. I always regretted not being able to race at the Indianapolis 500 because when I went, we had to split between CART and IRL and Indy Racing League had the Indianapolis 500 as a jewel in the crown and we went with the CART series that didn't. Um, and my regret is that I did six 500 mile races and I think five of them I had top, top six places with one win in the second. And I always knew that, you know, 500 mile races, I was competitive. And I think some of that went back to my sports car days 
of setting a car up for distance running and understanding that it's going to change. And as you well know, guy, you know, you go around, you do a tank of fuel and an oval, you're changing cross weight. You know, you're, you're running with understanding what your tires are doing and what you're going to do on a pressure change on a front wing change, a little bit of gurney off the back for a bit more drag reduction, you know, bit of roll bar change. All those things are going on in the cockpit of those cars. And, and many times people don't quite understand that that amount of work and, and strategic stuff's going on between team and driver on an oval race. Yeah. Just dropping you out of the cockpit for a minute, um, which I like to do because I understand the, the stuff behind the scenes and you guys obviously understand what happens inside the car. To your family at this point, Mark, you've come from being a Formula One superstar and, you know, every kid wants their dad to be that. You've gone to IndyCar. Did you have any idea or any feeling from, from the family as to whether that change was positive for them from that point of view? You know, dad's now an IndyCar star. Um, or was it not something you really thought about at the time? Um, well, no, actually, you know, I had a, <laughs> uh, where we kind of missed out was I actually like had a massive accident in 1996, which was the first year that I went to IndyCar racing. So I had a huge accident in Rio de Janeiro on a tri-oval with brake failure and hit the concrete wall at uh, 100. Yeah, it's on YouTube. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's still in the top 10 ESPN crashes of all time. You know, I think they still watch it over there. Yeah, but it's a 198 mile an hour impact and 122 G impact uh, into concrete. So it, it messed me up to say the least. And uh, as you can imagine, your family, who unfortunately for me, you know, my wife was actually watching back in the UK at the time and saw it on TV along with many of my other family members. Um, once you've gone through that side of things, there's a lot of questions that get asked. And, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure guy, whether you've ever had a big, 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 big accident, which is actually giving you something to reconsider whether it's, you know, Worth Guy it. Smith, the racing driver going to exist anymore. I, I, you know, I, I've had it once with that. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of other big accidents, but that was the one time in my career that I had to, you know, I went, I, I went back in a car again. And my first time back in a race car after that accident was at Michigan super speedway. Um, <laughs> And I went out on the track in Michigan Super Speedway to two mile oval, 18 degrees of banking, 250 miles an hour, top speed, 225 in a corner. It's bumpy as well, isn't it there? It's bumpy. Yeah. Not, it's not easy. Not easy because, you know, it's Detroit, Michigan. So the winters are hard on it and the track gets bumpy. And I, I rolled out a pit lane, went out, got up to speed. Um, being honest, the first time on a super speedway, never experienced it, come from the back of this accident came in the pits after 10 laps and I said to the guy, I said, like, I'm horrified. I said, I can't, uh, I, the car feels horrible, unstable, I don't feel confident. And the guys looked at me and said, well, you're only doing like 180 miles an hour average. The car's not even efficient at those speeds. And I'm like, oh, geez, I'm like, you know, I'm 40 miles an hour average off. Yeah. You know, I should have been doing in the 220s. And a lot of it was just, was this, was the psychology factor of, am I actually geared up to be a racing driver again? And I drove off, I got in my rental car and I, and I went away for an hour on my own and, and had a serious word with myself on, is this for you? Do you want to do this again? Yeah. Um, because you know, no one's hitting us over the head telling us you must drive a racing car. It's choice. Yeah. And I came back with, with the ovals. You, you really have to kind of, you really have to have that. It's a bit like Le Mans. I mean, you have to have that respect, don't you? Every time you get in the car, you can't get, you know, you have to really kind of 
get your head into it because if you're not, if your head's not into it, that's when you're going to have an accident, isn't it? Well, you know as well as me, there's a lot of drivers out there doing oval racing. Uh, if they had a choice, they wouldn't do it. And I, I mean, and, and, and I, Mike Conway, you know, Mike, I've managed Mike for 15 years and I have the utmost respect for Mike because he was brave enough to say oval racing is not for me anymore. I don't want to do it. You know, he nearly took his life on one occasion and maybe, you know, close to it again on another. But he was, he was big enough to actually stand up and go, I'll be counted. You know, I, I don't do ovals anymore. Some guys have to do it because it's part and parcel of what they're up to and they need to fulfill that side. But, it, you know, it's, it's dangerous stuff. Um, you know, as I said to you, if you get it right, it's wonderful. But when it goes wrong, there is no small accident on an oval. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you obviously had you know a couple of you know a couple of different shunts throughout your time in IndyCar, but I mean you're also very successful. Um, you know, I think you won three races, and uh, in '97 you came close to winning in Detroit before you ran out of fuel on the last lap. Is that is that last corner, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, last corner, last lap, ran out of fuel. Uh, so close to taking the win, um, but we bounced back. We took uh, we took the next race in the season, and uh, which was at Portland in Oregon. Um, and we won it, and uh, and we won it in a quite spectacular fashion. I think uh, I think it's still like the closest kart victory in the history books. We crossed the line, something like three thousandths of a second or something in front of second place, which was uh, Gilles de Ferrand. Um, and I've got a great picture somewhere. Again, I don't know where it is, but I've got a picture of uh, of me, Gilles de Ferrand, and Raoul Bazel crossing the line at Portland. And Gilles was actually punching the air because he felt that he uh, had won the race. Yeah. Um, and little did he know. And little did I know, because my team was so happy and was celebrating that everybody forgot to get on the radio to tell me that I'd won the race. I didn't see I'd won it until I saw the car number at the top of the big scoring column in, you know, in, in digital lights. Right. Um, and, and then I knew that we'd, we'd done the job. But uh, yeah, fantastic race. The great track, Portland, as well, isn't it? I, I, I thought it was a really, really enjoyed racing there. It was a good little track. There. Yeah. I think it's still going. Is it still going? I, th- or if it, I think it's still there. Yeah, no, they're still going. In fact, they just took IndyCar back there last year. So, um, yeah, it, it used to be the G.I. Joe's 200 when we were doing it, but I think it's called something else now. But fantastic circuit. Yeah. And then, and then obviously, when you finished your sort of IndyCar career, obviously came to, came to a, a close... Um, what, 2000 and then, and then you end up coming back to sports car racing again so you've always had this kind of affinity with sports car racing you've always sort of come back there and uh, you know kind of gone full circle and you came back uh, back with mg so how did that sort of come about again was that through lola and and the connections there yeah exactly that again those relationships again you know lola you know the guys called me up and said listen you know we've got a big project again we want you to come back and uh, work with us um, I did a much bigger deal because I, I was integrated into the, uh, this MG Rover group, yep. the, uh, the Phoenix consortium, you know, so I was part and parcel of this, uh, this bigger picture, um, on being a sort of ambassador for the brand. You were rallying with them as well, didn't you? I did. I did. I did, uh, rally of Great Britain. Yeah. Um, yes, indeed. Um, and I, and I tested the touring car as well with Dick Bennett's. So, um, there was a lot of stuff there. And, again, if I'm honest, it was a little bit disappointing because it was kind of an unfulfilled project because regretfully the whole Phoenix and Sortium MG Rover group thing sort of, you know, dismantled. And of course the racing program got caught up in that, but 
But you know, that little uh, 675, the little LMP2 car was a fantastic car. It was a, it was a brilliant little chassis. And I think we, I'm trying to think, I think the Le Mans in the wet conditions, I think we were running third overall for something like three and a half, three hours, 45 minutes at the front end of the race when it was uh, in those poor conditions. Um, it's the longest I've ever done in a race car. It's to the point where I was on the radio saying, you've got to get me out because uh, I'm done. I'm wiped out. Really? Yeah. A great, great little car. I mean, I, I ended up racing later on with, with Dyson, with Dyson racing and um, like a little go-kart, just like so light and nimble and you could, you know, really well sorted car. Um, yeah, this is where, you know, you guys know the cars, you were in the cockpits for these things, but this is where the kind of the enthusiast element comes in for anyone listening, because at that point, going to Le Mans to watch three, at that point, British teams and, and Mark, British driver in, in the MG, and I think was, was Anthony in with you that year? Um, certainly he was there for the signing when I got my hat in the, um, when I met you in the, uh, <laughs> the <laughs> Kevin McGarrity as well. I think it was Kevin and Julian. Was it? It was just, I think it was 2002 that I was there with the Hot Wheels year, but it was this, this dream of this kind of big British renaissance um, in GT racing in the Le Mans 24 hours race. And it's still, I said to you when we were talking to Mike, uh, guy, it still stands the hairs up on the back of my neck when I remember the cars coming down with the Superman music on. I was in the first grandstand at the cor first corner and the cars rumble past and you've got Bentley, you've got MG, you've got uh, Morgan further back in the order. Just a real golden era to, to have been a part of. And that story, the British driver, British team, it must still resonate with you. Superman music. Was there Superman music? There was Superman music. Oh, that was just, I I the cars. That was just for you, Mark. It's one of the best experiences I've ever, ever had in most. I never heard of that. In fact, that just reminds me because a little bird told me that you quite like Spider Man. <laughs> Which little bird would that be? <laughs> I blame yeah. my kids for that. But. <clears throat> it's a, a, Paul, when, you, when you've been in a sport that long, you've got a big network of contacts, you know, and uh, somebody gave me the heads up that you're a bit of a Spider-Man enthusiast. Wouldn't be Miss Pritchard, would it? Could be. Yeah, yeah. Claire Pritchard, right. That story is just, it's still to this day, uh, and then with the, the win of the, the one-two the year after, um, just still captures my imagination as a, as a motor. Well, listen, I, th I think, you know, at the end of the day, and, and Guy knows this as well, when you're, when you're a British driver and you're representing a British manufacturer, you know, a brand <laughs> that looks very good on you, looks much very better good. on you than what it does me. Um, they, <laughs> it, it really is something quite special. You know, I, I, um, yes, it was fantastic when I did Peugeot and we won. It was very special. But to come as a Brit, and you know be a bentley boy like guy or you know with mg it's just got that little little extra bit you know I, they are great memories for sure yeah, it's funny because it's like le mans, you know, le mans is a, it's like a british race that's held in france you know it really is it, it's all the, i mean all the fans are predominantly british and they you know i i know certainly at bentley i mean they were taking it in turns there was people opposite our pits that were just waving the flag and every time they do a driver change he'd pass the flag to his mate and he'd wave it for the next two hours or whatever it may be I mean, it's just amazing. But that, for me, that was the first time, obviously, when I was at Bentley in 2003 and Mark joined in, in the sister car with uh, Johnny Herbert and, and uh, Brabs. Um, that was really the first time I'd really kind of met Mark. Um, and, you know, for me, I mean, I was absolutely the junior kid in the team, you know, much as Mark had been when he started his career in, in, uh, in Le Mans. And, and, you know, to be amongst all these 
you know, there was, Mark's car was like the sort of Formula One sort of superstars, and our car was more the sports car superstars, and then me. And, um, you know, to be amongst those people, you know, it, it, it's, just, it's just awesome. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't believe it, you know, seeing my sort of, you know, heroes in Formula One, and then obviously, you know, people like Tom Christensen, Dino Capello your learning curve just goes through the roof because you're just picking up on, on these different conversations. You are hearing the debriefs and, and as a young driver, you just, you just learn so much. And, um, uh, you know, Mark was really good to me, gave me a lot of advice and, you know, showed me some of his dancing moves, which are questionable. Um, and you know, he, like, he likes a little bit, likes a little bit of rap and stuff. You know, he's, 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 you know, I thought he was quite cool. You know, he's quite cool. Uh, <laughs> we go behind the visor with him. Like. Yeah, yeah. He'd often, he'd often come into the motorhome and he'd be like, you know, be like, like Snoop Dogg on or something. And Mark would be like, you know, like, you know, throwing some moves together and sort of kept, kept, kept it, you know, kept the mood light, which but it was good. It was a, I think, you know, obviously the, the result was, was a good result for Bentley, but um, I think we, we, we all got on really well and it was a good vibe. I mean, um, there was, you know, there was obviously competition between the two cars, but I think it was healthy. Um, you know, on the day we had the luck, and 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 it could have gone either way to to be true. Uh, to, Jonathan Tookwell actually um, asked you a question directly, both of you, on this one because uh, he wanted to know on Twitter. Um, firstly, how did the Speed Eight drive come about? I think for both of you, uh, but how competitive was it between the cars? You say it was friendly competition, but there must have been those moments in the car where, you know, you you all really want to win this, Mark. You would have wanted another one to add to the the tally uh, listen I, I think it was it was very competitive but it was it was a friendly competition because you know as, as guys saying you know a lot of the guys there were you know very experienced guy was uh, the least experienced out of all of us you know and uh, and I have to say you know guy guy stepped up to the plate in a big way because you know he, he was a tremendous contribution to the to the guys on his team and also as a team player and, and I think, you know, for me, probably, you know, and, and I might be wrong, Guy, but I think that was probably a, a great platform for you to go on and, uh, and build upon that because, you know, it, it really um, it put your name in, in, in the lights in sports car. But healthy competition is good. You know, it drives everybody on. A little bit of psychology, a bit of banter. I think there was a lot of that that went on. You know, the end of 24 hours, listen, we, we had a couple of technical failures I think two one pound fifty parts, you know, battery terminals that fouled on us, and um, which cost us the opportunity of maybe going for the win. I think it would have been incredibly close, but that's that's endurance racing. That's what it's all about, you know. To finish first, first you must finish, and those guys did an excellent run and uh, and were you know outright winners and deservingly so. But it's it was special. Bentley Bentley boys being there for that weekend was an incredibly special moment. Um, going up the Champs Elysees, you know, remember that guy with it, with uh, with the guys and the cars was uh, was something that we would never ever do again. I mean, it was an incredible experience. When Derek, Derek no politics. It's nice. It's nice to hear that actually. Derek, Derek overheated the engine. Did, did, did you know? You know, you also <laughs> so we're going down the Champs Elysees, and of course they're air cooled. So we've got the two sort of blowers, you know, with the drivers in, and then Derek's going down the Champs Elysees in the winning car, and of course we're going pretty slowly because the traffic is, you know, is, is quite bad. And anyway, long story cut short, the engine ended up overheating. So the winning, winning engine in the car is like, there's this sort of uh, Le Mans, you know, EXP8 at the end of the Champs-Élysées steaming with smoke bellowing out of it because it's not too hot. <laughs> anyway, that, that's another story. But, um, but no. But how, how did you get your drive? So again, I mean, so, so I drove with Stephanie Hansen in Indy Lights. Um, 
I then ended up coming back to, in 2000, driving sports cars with him when he did a sports car team. And the team manager was John Wickham, who had obviously been at Spirit F1. They were good mates. I, I, I was driving with Stefan. Um, the car was unreliable, fast on occasion, but unreliable. But I was able to show good pace against Stefan. You know, I, I was able to match his pace, sometimes beat him, sometimes he'd beat me. But John Wickham you know, and I got on one, along really well. And um, unbeknown to me, um, at the end of that year, um, he was sort of in talks with Richard Lloyd. Uh, Bentley had been talking to Richard Lloyd about doing the, the, the comeback to Le Mans with Bentley. And they wanted John Wickham as a team manager. And you know, they were looking for a sort of handsome young Brit. Couldn't find one, so <laughs> next thing you know, uh, I, I get a phone call. Um, but we, we can come into this, but this is, this is, this is the time. So I ended up going to a test at Silverstone. I think they had James Weaver, Andy Wallace, um, Butch Leitzinger, whoever. And I'd gone along to this, this test. And a couple of weeks before, before I left America, I'd, done a, I'd lost a bet with my mechanics. I ended up bleaching my hair peroxide blonde. But it, but it was still portside blonde. So I ended up turning up to this Bentley, Bentley sort of, you know, meeting about possibly getting a drive. And I turned up looking like, well, <laughs> Billy Idol, but, you know, Billy Idol haircut. But that, that's, that's another story. But, but again, it, it, it's all about those relationships. You know, I think in, in, in motorsport, you know, it's, it, you're absolutely right. It's about building those relationships, building those, you know, building blocks. And when I met John and was driving around this, this shitbox Reynard that kept breaking down, you know, who, you know, who'd have known that, you know, two years later on, that would lead me to a drive, you know, with, with a factory team. And, 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 and that, that's the turning point. And that's why, you know, a lot of young drivers, you can never give up because you just never quite know. As long as you keep working and you keep pushing and building relationships and, and, and be a good person that you don't, you know, piss people off, your opportunity will come if you've got that, you know, if you've got the ability. So yeah, that's, that's how it came about. How about you, Mark? How did yours come about for the speed eight? It's interesting because uh, I knew John Wickham because John had employed me uh, to do a, a five-race program in F3 uh, in 1987 with Tom's Toyota. So we, we'd, uh, while I was doing the F3000 season, we, we went and did this little program because actually we got budget to run the program with my own team. And um, we used that budget to put into our F3000 budget. So that's how that came about. So I had that relationship with John. Um, <clears throat> mine was quite really funny because uh, Brundle had been at Bentley before. So he had talked to the guys, you know, about me and sports car. And he was off to do something different so he couldn't do it. Um, and then John called me and said, look, you know, there's a seat here. We want you to do Le Mans. Le Mans and Sebring it was. It was that deal, yeah? Yeah. So like we agreed terms and everything and like, okay, yeah, fine. Send a contract over. So he sent a contract. I signed it, sent it back. All good. So then I think it was like just after Christmas or something. You told me they couldn't pay me very much because they just signed Mark Blundell. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it was quite funny because he called me, I think just after Christmas, for getting ready for doing the first lot of testing. And uh, John said, okay, right, uh, schedule, da, 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 I think like January, something or other, we're going to go do this test. And I'm like, uh, well, uh, actually, John, um, I, I can't do that. And he's like, well, what do, what do you mean you can't do that? And I said, well, uh, I've got one arm in a sling at the moment. He said, what? I said, yeah. Uh, I said, yeah, in, de in December, I went off and did this, uh, this Supercross race with a 650 CCM at Brands Hatch. 
and unfortunately I went over the handlebars and um, and I punched the, uh, the the shoulder out of uh, of its socket and I broke my scapula um, and I'm probably another three four weeks before I'm back together again and he went apoplectic on the phone he said but you, you signed a contract with us I said yeah he said but you, you've only got one arm physically working I went yeah he said, but why? Why didn't you? He said, well, I, I said, listen, you never asked me. You didn't ask me if I had two functional arms. Okay. I was like, you know, I mean, you didn't ask me about my medical condition. I know I'm going to be okay, so I signed a contract. Sounds like a yeah. proper used car dealer, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was, it, in the end, it was fine. I mean, he, he knew that, uh, he knew that I, I wouldn't have signed it without knowing that things were going to be okay. But um, it was quite funny because I couldn't get in the car until later on for the testing. Um, and, and I think even to this day, he still, uh, he still holds me accountable for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's obviously great, great times. And then sort of, uh, I, I know obviously what you've done between, between then, but we have to sort of touch on the British touring car, the big comeback. Um, and, 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 and I know, I mean, respect for you to do, to come back and do it. I mean, I, you know, I realized, I mean, I've kind of done it myself, you know, retired and then come back and it's really hard i have to admit and um and you know obviously i know it was a tough season for you but what was the what was the sort of reason for coming back what was what made you just kind of think i want to go racing again um a few things um so i lost i lost my dad at the end of 2016 and that kind of made me feel a little bit like you know i'm at a kind of age and my dad died quite young and i'm like mm. Maybe I should just go and do something that, you know, I've still got a little bit of a, a yearning for. Um, that combined with then being approached by HP and actually then consequently HP and Intel. So two big blue chip global partners that were looking to do a program. And I thought, okay, look, I, I really can't, I can't not do this. I've got to go and do it. So it gave me a bit of a target. I started to get myself back into some kind of shape. Bearing in mind, I was going to be the oldest guy on the grid. I knew that. Um, what went wrong is that I was never looking to go and race a front-wheel drive car. That wasn't in my plans. Mm. I was all set to go and do actually a deal with, with the Subaru team and run a real-wheel drive car. And unfortunately, over the Christmas and New Year period, few things didn't go according to plan and we weren't in a position to continue with that deal. At that stage, the grid was pretty much set and there were very, very few options. And one of the only opportunities that existed where I could get the branding on the car that I needed to fulfill my obligations with my partners and to give me a team that I, you know, I knew somebody there that I knew I was going to be okay with, which was Sean Hollandby and his team was to run with the Audi. And, you know, in, in hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, um, it was a good decision at the time, should I say, you know, to go and get it all done and get underway. But, you know, to be a full-time racing driver again, as you know, Guy, takes quite a lot of time and commitment. Um, trying to run that parallel alongside the business that you're running, uh, obligations that you've got in several different areas, it was quite tough. But the biggest thing for me wasn't necessarily the time commitment. I could kind of just about manage that. It was actually my style of driving didn't really gel with a front-wheel drive car, and um, and, it, and it haunted me on, on several occasions. Because front-wheel drive, I mean, we, we, I spoke to Mike about it and, and uh, Mike Simpson, and, and it's completely different, isn't it? I mean, 
you know, we talked about left foot braking, right foot braking, and and I think with left with uh, front wheel drive, you have to pretty much drive. You have to left foot brake because you have to kind of get the thing spooled up and and all the rest of it. So you know, I think learning learning to drive a front wheel drive is 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 at this stage is is, is must have been very difficult. So I can I can definitely appreciate that that would have been a challenge. But but obviously now you've come back and just announced this year that you're going to be a um, so you got Mark Blundell Motorsport, and you're going to be a sporting director. So and that's again with with Sean running the team. So again, is that, that your role there, kind of just sort of supporting, giving advice? Um, you know, how 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 do you see that working? Um, you know what? It's it's like just a conduit between the, the drivers and the team and the engineers, and you know what it's like. It's it's at times you need somebody who's got some understanding and experience of both sides of the fence and somebody who's able to actually sort of pull everybody together and keep them on track in one direction and, uh, and smooth out the bumps in the road. And also, you know, we're, we're fickle guys, you know, I mean, at the end of it all, we need an arm around our shoulder. Sometimes we, we have to be told that we're good. Yeah. yeah? You know, uh, we've all got egos and um, sometimes I need like dumbing down and sometimes I need pumping up. And, and I, you know, my role will be to make sure that I get the best out of our two guys. Um, Sam Osborne is a guy that's done a year already. And I think we'll grow with confidence and, and grow in stature. And Jake Hill is a guy that's been around a few seasons now, but is a huge, a talented driver. I mean, underestimated and underrated in many areas, but already got a win under his belt. And, he, and he's one of those little terriers. So in one way, it's like, Sam, we've got to, propel him up to the next level and in some ways it's like with Jake we've actually got to just like temper him slightly yeah. and get him to look at the bigger picture and give him a bit more bandwidth yeah. but I'm, I'm really looking forward to it you've got the cars for the job as well that's that's important yeah I think that the Honda definitely would be you know a good choice as an all-round package at the moment and I think you know even though it's the older generation it's still competitive I went and to I hope Grayson and Bert there was saying that the older ones are so formidable that, you know, even with the newer model Hondas that they were running or are running, you know, they're worried about those older Civics because they were the ones that did all the business and all the testing and the chassis work and stuff. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there's, you know, so much data there and so much understanding of what they can do. And also with the BTCC rules and regulations, it's quite good that there's a, it's kind of an equalization to a certain extent. So for me, that's the beauty of that series. You know, I think, what did we have last year? Uh, I think the year before we had like 17 different winners in the championship, which is great. It's entertainment. That's what it should be all about. And it keeps everything wide open until the last moment. And um, that for me is what, uh, is what touring car racing is all about. And, you know, it's, and maybe I, if I'm lucky enough, I might jump into the little Honda and see what I could do just to make sure that I didn't go and walk away too early. And, and if I do walk away too early, then I've made a huge mistake. But no, I'm, I'm happy with where we are. I'm happy with what's going on for the future. And... I think, you know, it's, it's just another part of the book. Yeah. I haven't written the book yet, but it's another part of the book. Your, your brand is, you know, one of the reasons from the outside, it looks like your career has lasted so long is that you built this brand. And when Mark Blundell comes into something, there's a story that comes along with it. And there's a lot of media that comes along with that as well. And that, that MB, that Warner Brothers style logo, that you recognize <laughs> from the early days of F1, when you see the pictures, you know, it's your helmet. <laughs> Yeah. You've got that brand to bring with you. And I think that was good for the BTCC as well, wasn't it? You must have been aware of that. It must have been part of the decision-making. Yeah, I, I, I tell you something that uh, I think, and Guy will relate to this as well. As you, as you go through your career, the, you know, I've got friends who are drivers that are just that. They are drivers. You know, they, they don't do anything else. They don't understand anything else. 
I was always a little bit different in that I felt that, you know, motorsport was fickle. You know, I, I came from sort of like middle class background and, you know, I could see that there was this world, but I'm not so sure that it was going to ever last. So for me, it was all about making sure I had something to fall back on. So I've always had sort of like a sideline or some, some business framework that I could sort of fall back into if everything went pear-shaped. Um, so I've always had a commercial outlook. I've always wanted to make sure that, you know, these channels are available. And, and part of that is trying to build a brand, trying to build those reputational relationships that exist for years and years and years. You know, my first sponsor, uh, you know, my first major sponsor, uh, Grat Brothers in London, you know, the chairman there is still a personal friend of mine some 31 years later, you know, and we still have that rapport. And, you know, for me, that's, that's special. And, and I do things for him now than, you know, what he did for me, giving me a check with money to go racing back then, I will now repay him in doing stuff for him now on the other side of the fence. Because that's what I think is, you know, the right thing to do. Yeah. And that's where you get longevity. Yeah. So, Paul, should we, should we, should we fire into the, the quick fire questions? For yes, we should. But just after one strange question that came through on Twitter that, Mark, you may not want to answer this because we're not quite sure what it refers to. But Tony Shaw wanted to know, he says, I watched some pizza being carried away by ants in Enna. What did you reckon to the track and the experience? <laughs> Any ideas? Tony's a good mate, man, because he, he, he ran me at Manor. Um, and we, we'll, get him on the, we'll get him on the show at some point. But I'm not sure about the pizza bit part of the question. I, th I think he's probably relating to the Enna Pagusa circuit in Sicily um, that is in the, uh, the foreground of Mount Enna sort of thing. But um, uh, let's put it this way. It, it was not one of the best environments in terms of uh, cleansiness and, uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, it, it, it had a little bit of, uh, of work needed doing. It would never qualify to hold a Grand Prix. I don't think the FIA would, um, would sanction it. The, the toilets were a little bit to be desired, put it that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a couple of some quick fire questions that I'm just going to like, you just got to quickly just answer them, you know, off the cuff. And then we've got a question. We've got a pass along question from Abby, who was our previous guest. Um, so we'll, we'll work through the quick fires and we'll go to that if that's okay. So are you ready? Go for it. So Top Gear or Grand Tour? Neither. <laughs> I, I swear to you, I don't watch either, and um, I, I, it's not a, it's not a car program for me. I'm a purist. I want to go back to William Mullard and Top Gear. Anybody William can remember Mullard. that Top Gear. Well, yeah, okay, that's cool. Okay, that's Chris Harris, you need to get Mark Blundell on Top Gear. <laughs> yeah. so Formula One or IndyCar? F1. F1. Okay. Uh, beach holiday or adventure holiday? Beach. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Oversteer, understeer. Understeer. Hamilton or Senna? Senna. V6 or V8? V8. V8, cool. Right, so, so we're going to do the pass-along question from Abby, and then, and then we're going to ask you if you can just... If you, so for our next guest, who we don't quite know who it's going to be yet, just a pass-along question. So it can be anything... You can ask them any question, basically. You'll so see what, just how anything it can be with this one from Abby Eaton. <laughs> so, so this one from Abby, so you've got to listen to it. So question from Abby. Would you rather fight a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? <laughs> that was our reaction. Would you rather fight a horse-sized duck? I've been thinking about it ever since. Or a hundred duck-sized horses? Uh, <clears throat> it's an interesting question, yeah. Um, and why? I, I think, uh, yeah. 
I think I'll go with a horse-sized duck. I mean, if I'm going to get pulverised, I might as well just get it over and done with. I don't want to be, you know, having a hundred little fights. Forget yeah, exactly. that. I'll yeah. be worn out. <laughs> I hope Abby enjoys the answer to that. So, Mark, have you got, have you got a question? Any, it can be anything. It can be, what's your, you know, what's your favourite beer or what's your, whatever it may be. Have you got a question for our next, uh, our next uh, guest? I think I would ask the next guest, um, especially if they are connected with motorsport and if they're a driver, yeah. is, is, did they have any superstitions? Ah, good one. Good one. Did you have any superstitions? Do you have any? I had, I had routine. And that, and that routine was like, I would single seat the car, I would always get in from the left-hand side. Uh, if somebody hit me on the helmet, I would go apoplectic uh, because it just would ruin my, you know, zone. Um, and I think more and more just of a, of, a, of a structured routine. So not so much superstition. Um, Remember Steph, Steph, was it Steph, uh, Stefan Modena? He used to have the, the inside out gloves and he used to do all kinds of stuff, didn't he? He had loads of routines. He did. He was very superstitious, actually. You're right. Um, inside out glove. Yeah, you're right. You're spot on. So, yeah, no, I'd, I mean, I'm not one of those guys who wears the same underpants all the time. I mean, I just turn mine inside out. Much more efficient. <laughs> good, good. All right, Paul? Well, what a story. Um, I personally have really enjoyed that. I know, Guy, you've, you've known Mark for many years, raced against him. But for me, and like many of our listeners, to be an enthusiast and hear these stories firsthand and get behind the stories as well, which um, thank you, Mark, you allowed us to do. Uh, it's just been absolutely fantastic. And I hope that it follows on nicely from the first two episodes that we've had. And, um, and I hope that if you're listening to this, you'll follow us on Twitter, at Wheels Podcast. And um, follow Mark as well, the MB Partners account. Find out what they're up to as touring cars gets underway, hopefully in 2020. Um, we're also on Instagram, and uh, you'll be able to watch this on YouTube as well and see my glorious Hot Wheels Racing hat from 2002. <laughs> Another great podcast on spinning wheels. Yeah, no, great. And uh, as I said, thank you, big thank you to Mark for taking the time today to talk to us. Um, we talked to him all day long and, and, and uh, you know, about his career and stuff. But I think it gives um, our listeners a great insight into, into Mark and what a fantastic career. And uh, looking forward to the next chapter with, uh, you know, his, his, his uh, Mark Blundell team in BTCC. So thanks very much, Mark. And, uh, you know, we look forward to uh, following your, your uh, progress this year if we get back racing. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. And um, good luck with your next guest.